Welcome back to the podcast. We are continuing our Keep the Fires Burning series, a study of the minor characters of the Bible. But before we jump into it, I want to let you guys know a little bit about the ministry here that's going on at Evans for Faith. If you've been with us for a while, you know that Evans for Faith is much more than just this podcast. We do a lot of missionary work outside of this podcast, whether that's through uh, speaking events or specialty trips or even just having our resources out there for free through our website. Um, and we're able to do this uh, full-time because we are 100% donor-supported. So we don't have to charge for any of the work that we do because we have donors that come alongside us and say, yep, we're going to support you. We're going to pay your salaries. We're going to cover your operational expenses so you can be flexible and go where God needs you to go. Um, so we often go to places that may not be as financially blessed as others um, that need to hear uh whether it's hearing the gospel or just helping them dig deeper and giving them the tools to dig deeper in their Bibles, um, we go and do that. So if you would like to help come alongside our ministry and help support us financially, um, you can do that uh, at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence the number four faith.org slash give. Or you can scroll down and you'll see a link at the top of the description of this podcast. Um, and that will take you to our giving page where you can donate online. Or there's also instructions on how to send um money through the mail. So if you've already donated, we really appreciate you uh, helping us keep going. Um, if you've been thinking about donating, uh, the great thing about donations is that you can give as little or as much as you want and as often as you want. <laughs> so if you'd like to make us a part of our your financial planning this year, really appreciate it. We really uh, hope you consider it and pray about it and give as the Lord lays on your heart. Um, so with that, I'm going to let Michael take it away here with our Keep the Fires Burning series. And today we get to meet Ehud. Hello there, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. So glad you're joining me today as we continue in our series called Keep the Fires Burning. Now, these are minor Bible characters, but major lessons we can learn from them. Um, God put a lot of characters in the Bible, some of them sort of strange, some of them really sort of oddballs, in fact. And uh, this lesson today, we're going to be talking about one of the judges um, from the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. We come across this study of Ahud, it's E-H-U-D, Ehud, uh, Ahud is his name, and yeah, it's sort of a strange name. I'm glad my parents didn't name me Ahud, but uh, anyway, uh, he his whole thing is about fitting in when others really think you're weird, is what we're going to sort of gather from this. And as we always do, I like to tell you a story to get us started in this little series uh, and, and this lesson here today, and um, I want to tell you about a, something going back. We're going to go back in time a little bit to 1969. I don't know if you were alive back then. I was. Um, and uh, this story, though, is a really interesting story because it has major implications of something. As I said, the time, 1969. The place, Sunset Strip, California. Ooh, right there. It sort of sounds very dramatic. Uh, the person was a strange young man named Arthur Blessett. Now, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a minister to the hippies and the druggies and social outcasts of his time. He ran a quote-unquote church called His Place. His Place. It was a place often filled with runaways. There were stone people, bikers, misfits. He just had all sorts of social outcasts there. But Arthur took Jesus literally when he said that it was not 
health, the healthy that needed a physician, but those who were sick. And Jesus didn't to come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. You know, going back to Luke chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. So Arthur Blessett left his quote-unquote normal church and moved to the Sunset Strip in California, where there was a host of sinners and where grace could be distributed. He often quoted Romans chapter 5, verse 20 out of the King James Version, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I mean, that was he often said that. More than that, he felt compelled by God to make a 40-pound wooden cross and carry it across the United States. And then, not only that, he started using it across other countries. He crossed most other countries all over the world. In fact, Arthur Blessed holds the world walking distance record in the Guinness Book. Um, and believe it or not, this guy is 83 years old, and he is still going, featured many times on television programs. Um, but... To put it mildly, this guy was, and he is, an oddball um, in, in to many of the people in the world. He has been ridiculed. He's been arrested, um, spit upon, beaten, slandered, and all this quite often in his life. Even so, he says, I forgive. In the 1960s and the 1970s, he wrote an autobiography that he entitled, Turned Onto Jesus turned on to Jesus. Um, I read that book when I was in high school, and yeah, it was interesting reading about his life, because in this, he describes his um, this, this hippie-like individual, Arthur, and his psychedelic-covered Bible, and even the weird clothes that he wore. He was an oddball. This is back at the time of, like, Jesus freaks, if you're familiar with that uh, terminology from that period of time. Uh, one of the key events in this oddball's life, though, had an effect on people all over the world. Literally, it did. It was an event that occurred when he was preaching at a Jesus meeting, um, a conference in Midland, Texas, and the place was at the Chaparral Center. The meeting was called Decision 84, and it ran on the dates of April 1 through April 1st to April 6th. Well, an oil, an oil man named George W. Bush was listening to Arthur speak on the radio because he felt uncomfortable to attend the center himself. But he had a friend of his who called Arthur Blessed up and set up a meeting. George W. Bush felt strangely compelled to talk to this speaker. And so he set up this meeting um, the next day and uh, at a Midland restaurant. So the following is actually taken from the journal published by Arthur Blessed on this event. So I'm just going to read it from this. Jim Sale, who lived in Midland, was also in the oil business. He came to me and said, George W. Bush, the vice president's son, wants to meet you, Arthur, and to talk about Jesus. He doesn't feel compelled to attend the meetings at the Chaparral Center, but he's been listening to you on the radio. Will you meet him? Arthur says, I agreed, and we arranged a time to meet the next day. Jim and I walked into the room at the arranged time, and Mr. George W. Bush got up to shake our hands. He already knew my Midland friend. Mr. Bush then asked how I was enjoying Midland and how the meeting was going, and he said that he'd been listening on the radio. I told him that everything was wonderful, and the response at the meeting in the city was great. 
Then George W. Bush looked at me direct in the eyes with a calm, steady look and said, Arthur, I did not feel comfortable attending the meeting, but I want to talk to you about how to know Jesus Christ and how to follow him. Arthur writes, I was quite shocked at his direct and sincere approach. Few people just bring up that type of subject themselves, and especially within only two or three minutes of a meeting. I had been praying for him since last night when I heard that he wanted to talk. My friend Jim and I also prayed for Mr. Bush. And now I whispered a silent prayer, Oh, Lord Jesus, put your words in my mouth and lead him to understand and be saved. I slowly leaned forward and lifted the Bible that was in my hand and began to speak. I asked, what's your relationship with Jesus? He replied, I'm not sure. Let me ask you a question. If you died this moment, do you have the assurance that you would go to heaven? No, he replied. Then let me explain to you how you can have that assurance and know for sure that you're saved. And he replied, I like that. So Arthur began to share how to know and follow Jesus. Now, this well-documented meeting changed the life of one man who served, as you all recognize, as President of the United States of America and is one of the most influential men in the world. Oddballs like Arthur Blessed are often used by God to promote his plans. God uses people like this. And the Bible contains, when you read it, uh, it contains many oddballs that you can choose from. There's a whole list of them. I mean, men like Elijah, um, eating wild locusts and honey and dressed in camel's fur and stuff. I mean, there's John the Baptist, who was pretty much the same type of mold there. Uh, Paul was uh, sometimes acting like an oddball. John was. Peter definitely was an oddball at times. And this is just to name a few of the many oddballs known in the Bible. But in this series, as we're examining some lesser known ones, um, we're going to look at this, this one guy by the name of Ahud. Ahud. Now, Ahud... As I told you, he's one of the judges in chapter 3 of the book. Ehud lived in Israel at the time during the period of the judges, a time period Israel did not have a king. Now this, if you've read this book, it's an up and down time, for they would waver back and forth trying to decide if they would follow God or not. And when they refused to follow God, God allowed Israel to be punished by letting the surrounding nations, the nations that the Israelites were supposed to exterminate from the land, uh, he would allow them to invade and make slaves of the Jews. When the Jews would wake up and call out to God, he would choose a judge for them to relieve the oppression and lead them back to himself. During one of those times of slavery, the country that had control of Israel was Moab, present-day Jordan. Moab, though, back in biblical times, this, these were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship and sin with one of his daughters. Now, the king of Moab was a man named Eglon, who was, the Bible calls him, very, very fat. So let's pick up in Judges chapter 3, verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, what did we just read? The Lord raised up a man named Ehud, whose name means united. 
He was from the tribe of Benjamin. We see that, which is one of the smaller tribes of the twelve. And it seems, if you study Scripture carefully, it seems that a lot of people from that tribe had um, left-handedness, um, or they were ambidextrous, uh, as many scholars think. I mean, it is. I was just reading a paper just a, about a, um, two weeks ago uh, about this, and it was talking about that uh, researchers today, DNA researchers um, studying the genomes and stuff, believe that what they were talking about is actually a genetic thing that was found in that tribe, um, that it was for genetic reasons they had this left-handedness. But most of the time, it's talking about ambidextrous. But others say that left-handedness of Benjaminites was due to purposeful training. Many scholars believe that the, the way the ancient manuscripts now um, detail this passage, um, it's, it appears in the Hebrew that he has some sort of handicap, that he's not ambidextrous, and he's only capable of using his left hand. So it's a little bit of a mystery, but the Bible goes out of its way here to mention he's left-handed specifically. Now, we might not think of left-handedness as being a handicap, as many Bible scholars believe this is being referred to here, um, or thinking of left-handedness as making one an oddball today. We just don't see it that way. There's so many people that are left-handed. My oldest daughter is left-handed. But um, it has been listed in the past as a less desirable trait. In fact, elementary teachers in the United States schools were trained in the 1900s to be on the lookout in like kindergarten, first grade, second grade, to look out for people who, ex uh, students that were expressing left-handedness. And if discovered, the teachers were to try to influence them to use their right hands while they're still young instead of their left hand for most applications in life. Now, this is true. Um, you, you can read about um, education history in the United States. This is not unknown. Um, I remember even covering this in, um, in school when I was working on an elementary degree. Throughout history, left-handed people have been ridiculed and in a minority. Even so, there is a bit of history of famous people who came to greatness, who had the gene for left-handedness, or at least they are left-handed, dominantly left-handed people. Who are some? Oh, let me give you a, a, a list here of some people. Let's see if you can um, see if you can sort of catch that. These people, have you ever heard that they were left-handed? Because they are. Well, President Garfield, President Hoover, President Reagan. President Truman, President Ford, President Bush Sr., President Clinton, actually he was quite well known for that, President Obama, but others. How about Charlemagne? We read about Alexander the Great being left-handed. Napoleon Bonaparte was left-handed. Queen Victoria and Prince Charles is left-handed. Fidel Castro was left-handed. Uh, some famous celebrities, how about Oprah Winfrey? Famous doctor, Albert Schweitzer, comedian Jay Leno, humanist, uh, or hu um, comedian and, and author and writer, Mark Twain, musician, Paul McCartney, artist, Michelangelo, comedian, Tim Allen, actress, Nicole Kidman, Larry Fine from The Three Stooges was left-handed, Angelina Jolie, Bruce Willis, Scarlett Johansson, Morgan Freeman, these were all people. Jennifer Lawrence, they're all people who were left-handed. Uh, Joan of Arc, we know from writings, was left-handed. Bill Gates, 
is left-handed. James Cameron is left-handed. Nikola Telsa was left-handed. Jimi Hendrix was left-handed. So we could go on and on and on. There's a lot of famous people who are uh, or who were totally dominant left-handed people. Now, in ancient Palestine, you got to go back to when this is being written, when the story takes place, to be left-handed was in some cases to be an outcast back in this time period in Canaan. But God shows us in his word that looking different or being different is not something to be ashamed of, um, particularly when it deals with Jesus. Jesus treated all people, apart from hypocrites, the same way. Whether male or female, he treated them the same way. So Ahud did not let his, shall we say, nonconformity stand in his way of serving God. That's our premise of our uh, lesson here today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, Ehud also had a job, it tells us in this passage, that he was a tax collector for the king of Moab. Now, in this position, he is again an outcast, a social outcast. You see, tax collectors, <laughs> they've never been popular people. And as usual in this case, Ehud would have been labeled a traitor among his own people by forcibly collecting money from the poor and giving it to King uh, Eglon to support his overweight condition. To understand how people felt about a traitor, if you want to understand this really well and see it in a visual way, I suggest you watch a, an excellent Oscar-winning movie um, that took place like during World War II. It stars William Holden. It's called Stalag 17. It's classic. It's sort of a comedy in a way, but it's also a drama. It's the story about a German concentration, uh, concentration camp during World War II, and many of these American prisoners are kept there under guard. One of the prisoners is definitely a traitor who's betraying his allied uh, soldiers in the barracks. Um, the film follows the mistaken idea that William Holden, the actor, is the traitor. Uh, and because of their assumptions, he is mistreated, he is abused by his fellow men. Stalag 17 portrays how a society of people cannot tolerate a traitor. That's what this movie's premise is. That's the analogy of this movie. Now, tax collector Ahud would have been viewed as a traitor to his countrymen who's collecting money, and what they did, they often skimmed off the top profits for themselves. Though we don't know if Ehud actually did that type of evil thing, it was a common practice of tax collectors. Because of his employment, Ehud uh, probably did not have many friends. Most uh, tax collectors didn't have a lot of friends uh, outside of what their business was. Scripture tells us that he had servants to help him with the taxes, but these were likely professional acquaintances and not what we would call a true friend. Tax collectors seemed to only have one or two other friends, and those were usually other tax collectors. Besides being left-handed, Ehud was also skilled in metal shops, so he was one of these shop rats at his high school, I guess, is the way we would look at it today. He, he makes a special dagger for one purpose— to free Israel from oppression. Now, this is premeditated. We pick up the verse in Judges 3.16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. 
Now, first of all, how long is a cubit? A Jewish cubit was about 18 inches uh, in length. So this is no pocket knife uh, that he's making. It's a short, double-edged sword. That's what he makes. And from the account, we know that God was a part of Ehud's life because he becomes one of the judges of Israel, one of the leaders. Uh, to call the people back to God. So we know he has some type of relationship with God. We're not told much about it. So guided by his purpose, he felt, probably was from God, this oddball character set forth to free his country from King Eglon uh, and the Moabites. And let's pick it up in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 3. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people away who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. Hmm. You see, on this last day of his employment to the Moabites, our hero, Ehud, uh, is there as usual, turning in money he had collected from his fellow citizens um, and his own tribes and stuff, um, and from his district. Nothing is so far unusual or out of place. He leaves with his assistants, as usual, but leaves them after a very short journey as he's returning home. He stops, and he returns by himself to see the king again. Notice that he turns around at Gilgal. Now, it's interesting that God tells us this in his word, because it mentions Gilgal is a place full of idols. Maybe seeing these detestable items made him even angrier. Or I like the phrase, maybe it made him righteously indignant. In any case, it was there at the idols, that he puts his righteous indignation into motion. He goes back alone, and he's probably used to that, being alone. Well, he goes back and sees King Eglon again. The ancient historian Josephus tells us uh, about this meeting between Ehud and Eglon, and he also notes that they were friends, and they were, apparently. Um, At least it appeared that way to Eglon. And this is what Josephus writes. Now, this man became familiar with Eglon, and that by means of presence with which he obtained his favor and insinuated himself into his good opinion, whereby he had also developed of those that were about the king. So this is telling us that um, Ahud has actually become favorable in the the sight of the Moabites and especially the king. Now, before Ahud informs Eglon of this message from God, did you catch that Eglon tells everybody to leave them alone? Now, Ahud must have known that Eglon was going to do this because this whole thing seems to be so set up. So he must have known Eglon good enough to know that, oh, I'm going to have a private message here. He's going to have the room cleared out, which is exactly what happened for um, working directly to Ehud's uh, you know, plan. So I think it was an anticipated, this type of reaction, because now they're both alone together, picking up the story in verse uh, 20 through 22. And Ehud uh, came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool 
roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Now, this is probably not a really good bedtime story to tell your kids who have Bible bedtime stories as they're going to bed at night. The Bible is very graphic in this book, and especially in this case here of how he kills this evil king. Anyway, we now see another trait, though, of Ehud. He knows how to kill a man. Now, I'm not making light of this because a lot of people don't know how to kill someone. Um, No doubt he distracts Eglon. Uh, with his right hand, when he reaches with his left across his abdomen, removes the sword from his right thigh. Now, with his garments concealing the sword, Eglon does not suspect anything, and the king is fatally stabbed. Scripture is very descriptive here that Ehud left the sword in the belly of Eglon, whose fat oozed out and closed over the blade. I mean, yes, this is graphic. Whoa! God even tells us that his feces poured out of him. Oh, there's a nice thought. Yeah, but that's what happened. And that's not uncommon even when a person dies, not just from stabbing. Sometimes when people die, it's just a natural thing that your body releases um, urine and feces uh, when when a person dies. That that does happen. Uh, Anyway, it indicates that he's dead. There's no question about it. He's dead. He's not left alive to suffer. And the blade, being 18 inches long, being thrust into a man's abdomen, probably did unrepairable damage to his arteries, veins, and nerves. Now we pick up the story in verses 23 through 25. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Ooh, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took a key and opened it, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. You see, our hero makes good his escape and locked the door behind him. Now, being the feces, how God tells us that the feces of the man had poured out. The smell must have been quite strong, strong enough to make these servants on the other side of the wall and the door uh, think that he was probably going to the bathroom and definitely wanted some privacy. Uh, No doubt with the smell, they didn't feel like walking in there. Uh, This gave, I mean, the whole point of this is this gave Ehud the much needed time he needed, uh, he had to have to get away, to make his escape. We pick up the story in verses 26 through 30. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. There he arrived. He sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to him, follow after me. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the the fjords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab 
was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So what happened? Ehud ran away, not to hide, but to form a militia for battle. Note, did you catch that he doesn't go to his own tribe? He didn't go to the Benjamites. Mm -mm, He didn't go there. Um, There he would be an outcast. Instead, he goes to the tribe of Ephraim, a tribe with a, actually, if you read through the Old Testament, a tribe with a great history of victory in battles. They immediately choose him as their leader to take them into battle, and soon after, the rest of Israel then follows suit. Wow, our social outcast, our oddball, is now the leader of the nation. And he rallies the troops to follow him into battle and destroys the Moabite army. Wow. Isn't that cool how this all goes together? Now, I notice that there are seven distinct things. Actually, there's more than seven. There's there's about ten, actually, if we sit and count these. I guess there's about ten distinct things that we can say uh, from this passage that we learn about this social outcast, this, this oddball guy. So ten of these. First, Ehud was from the tribe where it seems like, from what even researchers today are saying, there might be some genetic link for left-handedness was well known. Um, So he's from an area of oddballs. I mean, this whole tribe seemed to have this, as opposed to the other 12 tribes. uh, Others in the 12 tribes, this tribe seemed to have a lot of people who were left-handed or ambidextrous. Second, to the society of his day, being left-handed likely made him a handicap. Matter of fact, as many as I said, many Bible scholars believe in the description. It's talking about him as being a handicap, this condition being a handicap for him, that he's not ambidextrous. Third, to his people, being a tax collector makes him a traitor, a despised person among his own tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, personally, he's probably a loner with very few friends. I mean, that's how tax collectors were. Fifth, he has had, he has excelled in metal shop classes as an elective, like in school or whatever. Uh, this is very odd too, because most Israelites had no idea on how to forge metal. Um, they had to go to other countries, for, for instance, like the Philistines, to get things made of iron and things. He he didn't know how to. They generally just didn't know how to do that. They're more agricultural. A sixth point: he is friendly with King Eglon of the enemy. Again, making him a social oddball and an outcast to his own people, being that he seems to be friend with this king. Hmm. The seventh point, he knows how to kill a man. He does know how to kill a man. Where he learned this skill, uh, we're not told, but he is very effective at it. Mm-hmm. Eighth point, he knows how to plan a righteous murder and get away with it. Now, that's a strange point, but really that's what's happening here. A righteous murder to to kill the person who is oppressing God's people, and even how to plan his getaway. He, he gets this. It's these um, premeditated or pre-planned events all fall into place perfectly. A ninth point, even though he is an oddball or handicapped compared to other Israelites, he has the charisma to not only organize an army of shepherds, but he makes them into a fighting machine. And then 10th, he apparently has a close relationship with God. 
How do we know this? God chooses him to be the judge of Israel over the next several decades. Wow. So let me ask you, what kind of oddball are you? <laughs> I've been asked that many times. Uh, do you think you're handicapped in some way um, and that prevents you from serving God or being God's messenger? Or are you under the opinion that you're not worthy or capable to do some service for God? Have you ever been told from others that you don't fit in and are thus excluded by your peers? Have you convinced yourself that you just aren't talented enough to serve God in some key way? Well, I'll tell you, a lot of people think those things. And I can think that there are major, or there are primarily two major types of oddballs that we talk about here. We're going to call them oddball number one and oddball number two. Yeah, real original, I'm sure. Uh, here's oddball number one. See if this is what you fit into. Are you ashamed of being labeled as an outcast or an oddball because of your relationship with God? I mean, sometimes Christians do feel that way. They, they feel their non-Christian friends won't accept them due to their relationship with Jesus and, and then let that relationship with God dwindle and die off. How often this happens. Jesus knows that some people will not accept you as part of, quote-unquote, the group, because if you have a close relationship with him, you're going to be an oddball. Jesus said that anyone who would be ashamed of him is not worthy of being a follower. So let me ask you. Are you like an oddball one, ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Well, if that's oddball one, what's oddball two? Well, it's almost like the opposite. These are Christians that are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, they believe it is the power of God into salvation. They refuse to keep their Christianity under wraps and be a secret Christian. They might dress differently than others. Mm-hmm. They may talk differently and use different language than others. I'm not talking about foreign language, just their way of speaking. They might think different thoughts than what their peers think. These people, these oddball number twos, are the people who refuse to compromise their beliefs just because of their friends. Oddballs number two, they, they read their Bible and maybe either some other Christian books too that their friends would object to. Oddballs number two, they, they can be found praying when others don't, or even when others make fun of them. They don't care what others say about them because they're going to live their lives for Jesus. Not secretively, for they're going to stand and let the world know that they are different. Sort of reminds me of a little bit here having to do a little basic science. You see, O2, we're talking about oddballs, O1 and O2. O2 is also the symbol for atmospheric oxygen, is it not? That's a molecule that is necessary for fire and combustion. It feeds a fire. Remove it, what happens? You extinguish the fire. You too can be a necessary component to begin a fire for God. So I challenge you to be an oddball two or an O2 for God. As I told you about Arthur Blessed, let me tell you something else. Arthur Blessed led a future president to the Lord. Yes, true. He also impacted many, many other people in his life of serving God. Now, some people don't like him. Even many Christians think he's too bizarre. But one person who was just entering high school, heard him speak once. 
and was challenged to be an oddball for Christ in his high school. He was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was not going to let his personal feelings stand in the way of his faith. So he wore his Christianity on his sleeve just because his faith was so penetrating, it went down deep to the bone of his body. He witnessed. He talked about Jesus in study halls. He shared people or shared Jesus with people during his lunchtime. He truly loved and cared for people. In speech class, when he gave speeches, he sometimes preached sermons about Jesus and salvation messages. For book reports in school, he wrote a book report on Romans and one on James. This is at the public high school. He tried to be real and show a loving Jesus to his schoolmates and his teachers. Because of all this, he was robbed, he was beaten, he was kicked, he was ridiculed, he was called names, he was made fun of, he was spit upon, he was ostracized. But when these things happened, he remembered that they did the same things to Jesus, to Paul, to John and others. He was a radically saved individual that would not back down on his faith or his commission in the Lord's army. And this day, he is still serving God, teaching and preaching the same gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's an O2. He's an oddball. And he's proud of it. There are a lot more like him around with even better stories than his. A phrase I still hear occasionally is all shook up. All shook up. Yeah, it's a phrase made popular by the late Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. All shook up. Fun little song. Several years ago, in an issue of Newsweek magazine, there was published an interesting article about this Elvis Presley guy. It was titled, All Shook Up. You see, Elvis Presley, the article goes into, was born dirt poor in a little town in Mississippi and was an only child. At the young age of 18, while making $14 a week as a truck driver, he just, on a lark, decided to make a recording. And he became one of the best paid male entertainers in the history of America. At age 23, though, he lost his mother. Just before his death at age 42, he wished he could find one week when he could just live a normal life, growing, going up and down streets of his city without being harassed. He said that he would pay a million dollars for just one week of peace. The other, another famous entertainer by the name of Pat Boone said of Elvis, I cared a lot for Elvis. He said, he went in the wrong direction. Ironically, Pat Boone continues, we met for the last time when I was going towards the east, and he was on his way to Las Vegas. Elvis said to me, say, Pat, where are you going? I told him I was going to be involved in some kind of ministry. And he said to me, hey, I'm, I'm going to Las Vegas. Pat, as long as I've known you, you've always been going the wrong direction. Pat Boone answered, Elvis, that just depends on where you're coming from and where you're going. 
I hope you've enjoyed this lesson, and I hope God spoke to you as we have talked about this this oddball character. Uh, a lot of people don't do. I've hardly ever heard so- sermons on Ahud, but he is an interesting character, to say the least. And I hope you ga- um, you gathered something from this in your life. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please contact us here at Evidence for Faith. And we would love to talk to you about that. And if you have any comments or questions, we again, we really would like your feedback. Um, if you're listening in whatever device, please make a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take care and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.